0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. I invite you to join me this morning in the 24th chapter of Acts, if you will. I want to read Acts 24, verses 24 to 27, as we speak on the church's prophetic voice. The church's prophetic voice. Acts 24, 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should be given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. This chapter describes the trial of Paul before the governor of Judea named Felix. And it's an interesting legal proceeding. Tertullus, who was the uh, hired gun of Paul's accusers, brought his case of prosecution, and he spent most of his time flattering the Roman procurator. They were called procurators because uh, these regional governors were responsible for procuring funds for the Roman Empire. That was their primary function. They were rulers over certain regions and their goal was to make sure the tax revenue was sufficient to fund the empire's greater ambitions. So uh, Felix was the governor or the procurator of Israel. He was located in Caesarea and Paul has been brought before him for a hearing. And it's a very interesting legal Again, proceeding that you read about here in Acts 24. I've read to you the very end of that uh, narrative in which uh, after the trial is over, and by the way, Felix did not make a decision on the trial. It says in uh, verse 22, when Felix heard these things, after he had heard Tertullus, the prosecutor, and then Paul's defense, when he had heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, when Lysias... The chief captain shall come down i will know the uttermost of your matter so he uh, put the verdict on hold for a little while and the passage i read says after certain days he came with his wife drusilla who was a Jewess. now he was a roman felix was a roman governor but he had married this woman named drusilla who was a jewish woman so they took advantage of paul being in prison to talk to him on numerous occasions it says he sent for him often hoping that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Remember, he's procuring funds, so any way that he can get extra revenue, he is interested in doing that. But I want you to notice that Paul, it says, reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, and Felix trembled. And I think it behooves us to ask the question today, does the church have a message? to those holding public office? What is to be our role as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the public square? Do we have a voice in the political arena? Or is our posture simply to be, as many suggest, one of political pacifism, like the Quakers and the Amish, sitting by silently when it comes to those in power, saying, we are interested in another world, and therefore it concerns us very little what happens in this world. Now I suggest to you we are interested in another world. We don't belong here. We are pilgrims and strangers here. This life is temporary and brief at best, and our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved. But my beloved, at the moment we're also residents of earth while we're citizens of heaven we are residents of earth and in a sense we have a dual citizenship and i suggest that being a follower of christ does not mean that we are only interested in the next world we also have to live in this world and the question what should be our stance and posture toward it is very relevant it's very important Now, perhaps you say today, just a minute, preacher, the church should not talk about politics. And to be honest with you, I really don't know where people get that idea. It doesn't come from the Bible, per se. For God has the right to speak about every sphere of life, both public and private. Our heart life, our attitudes, our home life, our recreation, the lordship of Jesus Christ extends to every sector of life. And I think one of the great perils of popular thinking is this tendency to separate between the sacred and the secular. To say I'm a Christian on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday, I live like the rest of the world. My beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Every thought is to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And if anybody has the right to speak to what is happening not only in the church but in culture at large, it's the creator of all men, the God who made all men and to whom all men are accountable. So while on one hand there are many Christians who believe that the church is primarily a political action committee and that our job is to manipulate government and to lobby the power brokers for their favor, and privilege, and by the way, that posture usually involves some form of compromise of our principles. But for those who see the church as a lobbying organization and preach a social gospel, I don't think that's the church's main business. And I also object to the viewpoint that is, again, a pacifistic viewpoint that just sits on the sidelines and says, we're not going to concern ourselves with anything in this world. There is to be a balance that is maintained on our part. And I want to try to address that a little bit today. Now you say, Brother Mike, just a minute, doesn't the Constitution say that there's to be a separation between church and state? And the answer to that question is no. The Constitution does not say that. That's actually a particular expression that Thomas Jefferson used in private correspondence on one occasion. He says that there's a wall of separation between church and state, but that's not in our official documents. Somebody says, well, are you saying that you don't believe in the separation of church and state? I do believe that there are different categories. I do believe that there are different functions. But to say there's a separation of church and state is not the same as saying that there should be a separation between God and state. God, again, is the ultimate authority. If there is to be no involvement at all from the church in the public square. I would ask you, was Elder John Leland wrong in 1788 to petition James Madison to include the First Amendment to the Constitution which guaranteed religious liberty, free speech, and a free press? In the interest of the Baptists that Elder Leland represented, was he wrong to do that? And I suggest the answer is absolutely not. For he had an interest in protecting religious freedoms for the Baptists that he represented, and it's not wrong for us to speak to those in power. Now, let's lay down a principle first and foremost this morning. God has ordained three categories of authority in the world, the government, the family, and the church, and each has its own area of responsibility and jurisdiction. It's not the church's role to replace the mother and the father in the home, and it's Certainly not the government's role to be the nanny of children in the home either. There's to be a separation of powers or authorities between the church, the government, and the home. Further, the church does not supplant the role of government in society. Our job is not to try to infiltrate the government to take over and to make America a theocracy like ancient Israel was. Nor does the state exercise authority over the church. Caesar is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The state doesn't have the right to affect what we believe, what we teach, and how we function as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is to be a separation or distinction in these three different categories. What should be our role then? Obviously, we should pray for those in positions of authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that we're to pray for those who lead us, for those who make decisions that affect our lives. God's people should pray for their leaders, that God would direct them, control them, overrule their sinful designs. We should pray for them. Furthermore, Christians should be good citizens and should be law-abiding as much as is possible. We should live peaceably with all men, and lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. And obviously I think we could say further that we should participate as much as possible in our republic by electing representatives that will make decisions that are consistent with the moral principles laid out in the word of God. But here's my question today, is that the extent of our involvement in the public sector I suggest for your consideration the church has a moral imperative to speak God's truth to power and authority. The church speaks with a prophetic voice to both the family and the government. You see, because we possess the ultimate moral authority of God's word, the church must inform parents what it means to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the church likewise informs the governor how to govern. In other words the church functions as the conscience of culture bringing God's word to bear on all of life I call this the prophetic voice now I suggest the church speaks with two voices we speak to those who believe with the pastoral voice and that's our main function by and large the church should speak to comfort the people of God Isaiah 40 verse 1 says it like this, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, and she hath received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Our primary goal is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the bulk of our time and efforts and energy should be devoted toward declaring the old, old story of Jesus and his love. That's the pastoral voice, like a shepherd shepherds a flock of sheep with tender care and gentleness and love and devotion. We have good news. And our primary function as the church is to speak words of comfort to God's people. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 says, say unto the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thy God reigneth. Our job is to proclaim the sovereignty of God, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the pastoral voice. Paul took that approach when he came to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He says, Brethren, I determine not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. To God's people, to those who believe, they need to be comforted, encouraged. They need to be instructed in what great things the Lord has done for them. 1 Corinthians 15, one, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you've received and wherein you stand by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, my friends, there is no happier task in my life as a servant of God than to tell God's people what great things Jesus Christ has accomplished. I love to honor and lift up the matchless name of Jesus, his finished work on the cross, his substitutionary death, what he accomplished, and how victorious he is as he sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. I love to remind God's people about the Lord's faithfulness and his tender promises like Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. Fear thou not for I am with thee for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yea I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Doesn't it encourage you my beloved to come to the house of God and to be reminded that the Lord has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. That he's promised to strengthen you and to be with you in six troubles, yea, in seven, not to abandon you. Doesn't it encourage you to know that he's a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God whose love will never cease. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the pastoral voice. That's the voice that the disciples of Jesus were deployed with in Matthew 28:18, when Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Go out and proclaim the good news and tell others what God has planned in the covenant. Christ is executed at the cross. The spirit applies in the new birth and tell them what it means to live in the light of his saving grace. My beloved, that's the church's pastoral voice. And again, it's our main function. Isaiah 52 verse 8 says, thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. They shall see eye to eye. And it's wonderful to see old Baptist preachers proclaim the old, old story of the finished work of Jesus Christ with one voice, seeing eye to eye. Isn't it wonderful that you can go to a meeting and hear preachers from different parts of the country, and they all preach basically the same old story of the successful Savior that we worship and serve today. Thy watchman shall lift up the voice. That's the comforting voice, the pastoral voice. But that's a message to those who already believe that's a message to the children of God that's a message to those who have already been quickened but I'll tell you we also have a voice to the culture at large and it's not the main part of our function as the church but this is the prophetic voice to those in sin and disobedience as Paul on this occasion reasoned with Felix concerning not the finished work of Jesus Christ but of righteousness self-control and judgment to come That seems to be a more negative kind of focus, doesn't it? And this is the prophetic voice that he talks about in Isaiah 58, verse 1, when he says, Cry aloud and spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show the people their sins and their transgressions. Now, you know, the Old Testament prophets acted as heaven's prosecutors to the kings that were installed over the nation and to the people as well. They had the jurisdiction of heaven. Now I suggest that many people today think that God, that heaven has no jurisdiction over their lives. They say, I'm my own judge. I determine what's right and wrong and how I'm going to live. But the Old Testament prophets came to the king who thought that he was the plenipotentiary authority. He thought he was the ultimate power. And they said, you're not the ultimate power. Heaven has jurisdiction over you. Those Old Testament prophets were covenant prosecutors. They served the role as heaven's prosecutors, bringing the jurisdiction of heaven to bear on earth's decisions. And some of those kings didn't like those prophets. In fact, they said to the prophets, speak to us smooth things. Do you remember Ahab when Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of Jehovah here besides all of your own hired preachers? And Ahab said, yes, there is, but I hate him. Because he prophesies no good at all concerning me, but only evil. All he says is negative. And I don't like him. Jehoshaphat said, well, let's call him and see what he has to say about this situation. And of course, when Micaiah shows up, he finally says, Ahab, if you go into battle on this occasion, you will not come back alive. And Ahab turned to Jehoshaphat and said, see, didn't I tell you that he never prophesies any good concerning me, but evil? Now, those prophets were not popular figure because the powers that be didn't want to hear what they had to say. And even many of the people said, prophesy not unto us right things, but speak to us smooth things and prophesy deceits. The people said, if you're going to bring a negative message, we don't want to hear it. Just tell us everything's okay. That's why when Jeremiah said, we're going into Babylon for 70 years, God is displeased with the nation and We will be judged and taken into Babylonian captivity. Many of the people did not appreciate it. The kings and the leaders didn't appreciate it. So they put him into a cistern in the ground, which had been converted into a dungeon. And they kept him there. And it says, he sank in the mire. What a terrible state that was for the old preacher. And he would have probably died there had not an Ethiopian had mercy upon him and brought him bread to eat. And water to drink and sustained him and finally negotiated his release but you see the Old Testament prophets brought a message that people didn't often want to hear cry aloud and spare not lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show the house of Israel their sins and the people their transgressions that is not a popular thing and because it's not popular and because the sensitivities of people are so refined today they say, just tell us what's politically correct. Just tell us everything's okay. Then any prophetic voice in the pulpit is often seen as something to be rejected. The public pressure is often today that uh, you just tell us what the Lord's done for us and that'll be enough. And don't bother about talking about what's happening in our world. Again, what's happening in our world is only temporary, right? We're headed to another world. And it'll be wonderful when we get there. And I love to tell that story, and I love to point people to that and remind them of that truth. But while we're here, the church does have a role to play in popular culture. And it's this prophetic role. And I think we could illustrate it by considering the contrast between the way Paul preached to the Ephesians and the way he preached at Athens. You know, in the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament... The Apostle Paul speaks about predestination, election, the redemption of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He speaks about the fact that we were dead in sins in Ephesians chapter 2, but God in his grace has rescued us and through his great love wherewith he has loved us, he has quickened us together with Christ and we've been saved by grace. I suggest that's the pastoral voice, that's the comforting voice, that's the good news message, right? But you know, when he went to Athens, he didn't talk about predestination and election and redemption by Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. He didn't preach the gospel per se when he went to Athens. Do you know what he did? He preached about the creator God who made all men. And he said, in him we live and move and have our being." And he made us for this purpose, that we should seek the Lord, if haply we might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And he talked about the fact that the idols of men are not idols at all. They're not gods at all. They're just fabrications of man's imagination. They have no strength. They have eyes, but they see not. Ears, but they hear not. Feet, but they walk not. Hands, but they handle not. Neither speak they through their voice. He talked about how foolish idolatry is in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill and the reason is because he's speaking to the philosophers and the Stoics and the Epicureans and the wise men of the day he's speaking in the public square not in the church building he's not preaching to the people of God who already believe and who already show evidence of a tender heart but he's preaching my friends publicly and he's speaking with a different voice He's spoken with the calming pastoral voice to the Ephesians, but he speaks with the direct prophetic voice. Now, he's not banging his fist and foaming at the mouth and grabbing his pitchfork and threatening fire and brimstone. That's not what I mean when I say the prophetic voice. There's a very calm, reasoned delivery of the message of God's word. And here's the distinction I'm making. God is every man's creator, but he's not every man's redeemer. God is everyone's creator. Every human being is accountable to him. Every human being, whether they're children of God or not, whether they've been born again or not, whether they were embraced in the everlasting covenant, God's electing grace or not. Every human being on this earth must finally give an account of himself to God, but only those who've been born again, only those who were embraced in God's covenant of redemption and for whom Jesus died on the cross, only they will respond to the good news of salvation by grace and find hope in what great things the Lord's done for them. So what should be our role? I say the church speaks with the pastoral voice to those that believe, but to those who are embroiled in sin and disobedience in this world, it is appropriate for us, as Paul illustrated in the difference between the way he approached the Ephesians and the way he approached the Athenians. To speak with the prophetic voice. And this is what 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 is talking about when he says, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Now, what he's doing here is he is telling the church that they don't need to go to law in order to solve differences within the congregation. So he says, the least esteemed in the church have the wisdom and the spiritual resources necessary to make decisions that affect the church. That's the point that he's making. But notice he makes that point by saying, don't you know that the saints shall judge the world and that the saints will judge angels? say, what does that mean, Brother Mike? Here's what it means. Whenever I say the world is evil, the world is embroiled in sin, the world is headed for judgment, God is not pleased with the way that this world is operating, I'm pronouncing judgments, am I not? I'm pronouncing a judgment on the world. You say, well, what right do you have to pontificate and to judge us? You know, when uh, Lot, when those men of Sodom knocked on his door and said, uh, give us the men that came into you tonight. And Lot said, do not this wickedness. No, they were a rioting mob, but they were relatively peaceful until he made a moral judgment. But as soon as he used the word wickedness, they lost all control and compunction. And they burst through the door, you know, and an angel, one of the angels, shut the door. But I mean, Lot gave them his daughters. What a compromise that was. It was a, a terrible scene, but my point is that when moral judgment was pronounced that incensed them even more and the saints the church testifies that the works of this world are evil jesus said john 7 verse 7 the world cannot hate you but me it hateth because i testify of it that the works thereof are evil now the word evil again has moral overtones somebody says well it's probably not politically expedient to say it's not politically advantageous or expedient and to say it's evil You know, those are two different things. People will say, well, you may be right. It may not be wise at this point. But to say it's a sin to do that, people don't want to be told that. But the saints judge the world. The saints also judge angels. You say, well, who are you to judge an angel? I'm telling you that there was an angel named Lucifer, which means the shining one, that was lifted up in pride and God cast him out of heaven. I've just pronounced a judgment. I've just issued an opinion. I've just given you a verdict, and that's the verdict of the church. The saints agree that Lucifer was wrong to launch a coup d'etat against the government of heaven and to overtake the throne of God. He was sinning, and he was judged for that, and he will be doomed finally to the lake of fire. Now, that's the judgment we pronounce. Don't you know that the church has an opinion on the world, and the church has an opinion about angels? And we have opinions about things pertaining to this life. And those opinions are based not on our preference or personalities, but on the absolute standard of God's word. That's the prophetic voice we speak with. John the Baptist spoke with prophetic voice to Herod. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. And he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. Listen to this. Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, And bound him in prison. That old Baptist preacher had been put in jail. For Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her, and John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. You say, why didn't you just keep your mouth shut, John? And just preach the good news and not worry about what was happening with Herod. I mean, he's a government official, and you're a preacher. Does the church have any voice in regards to what is happening? In public, well, John the Baptist said, it is not lawful. That simply means it's a sin for you to steal your brother's wife. It is a sin for you to take her. I suggest the church speaks today with this prophetic voice because we are living in what Jesus called an evil world. I testified the works thereof are evil. Do you know how evil our world is today? They have redefined marriage in my lifetime. Marriage used to be one man and one woman for life, and now two men in many places can be married, two women in many places can be married, even some clergy members are married to people of the same sex. That's mind-boggling. Who would have ever dreamed that would happen? I'll tell you, the world I grew up in in the 1960s has dramatically changed. (laughs) It's not the same world in many respects. They've normalized homosexuality in our world today. They're currently pushing for the acceptance of transsexualism, and pedophilia even, and all kinds of deviancy. Do you know Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, has an entire program associated with their medical school that specializes in gender reassignment surgery, in which uh, young people who feel like they were born in the wrong body and who identify as a different gender, can come and have physical surgery to to transition them into another gender than the one in which they were born, another biological sex. And that's a prestigious medical school, Vanderbilt University. And the dean of the medical school publicly stated that if anyone on his staff disagrees with that policy, they can find another job. That's how this doctor, this physician is pushing surgical mutilation and maiming of young boys and young girls who psychologically feel that they are another gender. Now, this is happening in our culture today. I, I'm saying, could, would you have ever dreamed that these things would be happening in our world? He said, Brother Mike, we shouldn't be talking about this from the pulpit. Again, the church has a prophetic voice. The church has a role to play in what is happening in culture. We need to speak straight from the hip. To be as kind as possible as we speak the truth in love. But at the same time, God's people need to know and anyone who might hear us needs to know what the Bible has to say about these popular issues that we're facing today. And you talk about the mind-blowing things that have developed in our culture. Who would have ever dreamed that biological males who identify as a female would be allowed to compete in women's sporting events? in popular culture, you know the feminist movement boasted itself that we're trying to elevate women and get more equality for them, but now they're the very ones that are saying that a biological male who wins a swimming competition against a bunch of girls, no offense intended ladies, is to be celebrated and applauded instead of prosecuted (laughs) and certainly critiqued. Add to this the rising influence of social justice campaigns that divide people into warring racial factions like critical race theory and intersectionality. You think about how all of that has been fomented and into an inferno in the popular media culture. Then you think about how the medical profession has been hijacked by social engineers who practice their mad science not only in gender reassignment surgeries but who push abortion as a reproductive right and euthanasia of the elderly is increasingly common in the medical community as physicians collude with insurers and big pharma to decide who is eligible for treatment and medication and who is not. And I often wonder when I hear stories about things like that, whatever happened to the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm from the medical community. Truly, there's a new paganism that is popular in our society today, which seems to be as vile and as anti-biblical as the ancient pagan world before Christianity came on the scene. And when you add to that the use of modern technology that is able to control everything and silence anyone that refuses to conform, My beloved, we're living in an evil world today. The world is evil. I testify of this world that it's evil, said Jesus. And our world is showing itself to be increasingly evil, is it not? We've enjoyed 200 plus years of religious freedom in this country. But I'm telling you, my beloved, those days are not here anymore. We are facing a brave new world, as Huxley called it. And it is a very frightening thing. And the church needs to speak clearly in a world like this. Let's get to our text. I have spent the bulk of my time describing the reason the church has a voice to those holding public office, and here's a classic example of what kind of voice that should be in Acts chapter 24 when Paul said before Felix, when it says he reasoned before him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Again, I noticed he doesn't say reasoned about redemption and effectual calling and the preservation of the saints, but he reasoned about righteousness. That means living right, doing right keeping God's law, temperance, that is, self-control and judgment to come. Now, he's not being disrespectful. I don't believe he said, you're a rotten, no good, hell-deserving, hell-bound sinner, Felix. I don't believe that's what he's doing. But as they're talking, he reasoned. But that's a word that speaks of calm logic. It speaks of rational, propositional truth. He reasoned. It speaks of a logical kind of process come now and let us reason together. Paul is reasoning about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. That's his prophetic voice. And he's doing this before Felix. Now, interestingly, Felix is one of the few people that all four reputable first century historians, the Romans Suetonius and Tacitus, the Jewish historian Josephus, and Luke, the beloved physician Luke, who is one of the most reputable historians of them all. In fact, no archaeological find has ever disproved any of the details that Luke has listed in the book of Acts. Everything he said was historically accurate, and he is on the level with the most reputable historians of the first century Mediterranean world. All four historians, Suetonius, Tacitus, Josephus, and Luke, mention this governor named Felix. This man was born a Greek slave, but he obtained his freedom, which was an amazing thing seeing he was born in slavery. He obtained his freedom from the Emperor Claudius, who for some reason took an unusual interest in Felix and his brother Pallas. In fact, Felix and Pallas were said to be very precocious young men and Claudius, the Roman Emperor, favored them and before you know it, Felix has risen to political power through Claudius's favor and partly because his first wife was actually the granddaughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Now I've talked to you about his third wife that he married Drusilla, and the fact is after he was installed as governor of Judea, shortly after assuming that position, he seduced and married Drusilla who was another man's wife. She was the wife of a pagan prince He might have seen her at a ball or a party, but anyway, the new Roman governor seduced and married Drusilla and stole her from her previous husband. And Drusilla, again, was the sister of Herod Agrippa II. This man, Felix, who had risen to power very unusually, had the reputation of being very severe in quelling insurrections. He was successful at it. Anytime a Jewish mob would arise or, a, you know, a little ripple of protest would surface, he would put it down. He was very successful at quelling insurrection. In fact, Tacitus, the Roman historian, says that he reveled in cruelty and lust and he wielded the power of a king while maintaining the spirit of a slave. <laughs> so extreme was Felix that even Nero, when he came to power, now Nero was not a calm, gentle kind man. But even Nero, who was nicknamed the beast, even Nero was embarrassed at Felix's severity. And when Nero rose in the place of Claudius as Roman emperor, he recalled Felix and replaced him, as the text said in our reading this morning, with Festus as governor of Judea. I want you to notice how Paul tailored his message to this public official. He reasoned of righteousness. Now, righteousness, according to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2, is the opposite of wickedness. Righteousness is the opposite of perversion, according to Proverbs 8.8. It's the opposite of lying, according to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 17. It's a synonym of justice and truth, according to Psalm 106, verse 3. He reasoned of righteousness, because 2 Samuel 23, verse 3 says, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And Proverbs chapter 16, verse 12, says it like this. It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. He reasoned of righteousness. He reasoned of temperance. Proverbs 25:28 says a man that has no control over his own spirit. He's like a city broken down without walls. That is, he's vulnerable to the enemy attack. He's ready to be conquered. You may have heard of Edmund Hillary, who was the first man to climb Mount Everest. Hillary was asked by a reporter on one occasion why he was so interested in conquering mountains, and Hillary's response is very telling. He said, if it's not the mountain that I conquer, it is ourselves that we conquer. The goal is to control yourself, to discipline yourself. And Peter the Great, who was the czar of Russia, probably heard his famous quote, I've conquered an empire, but I've not been able to conquer myself. How many people could that be said about in this world? Temperance is self-control. You say, Brother Mike, why would Felix need to hear about temperance? Well, he had several wives. He was given to excesses in lust and all sorts of debauchery. And you think about the need for self-control in our culture. You know, the word temperance was actually used when it came to the abuse of alcohol back in the day. Do you remember the temperance societies that were formed? Because people didn't have control when it came to indulging in alcohol. When it comes to sexual lust... We need temperance or self-control there when it comes to food. (laughs) Now, let's not talk too much about that, okay? The dessert table, we need a little self-control there, don't we? Our diets. Somebody says, I just can't stop myself. I start binging on Netflix and just eating marshmallows and ice cream. I just can't stop. We need to be reminded with the prophetic voice of the need for temperance. God calls us to self-control. What about controlling your emotions, your passions, anger? I've had people say before, whenever I lose my temper, just watch out. I'm a wrecking ball, no telling what I'm going to do. Well, my friends, you need to change that. You have the ability by the grace of God to control yourself. Let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, you know, to control the anger. You say, I just fly off the handle. I have news for you. We all do that. But some of us have learned that you better control your temper. Temperance is control your temper, right? What about jealousy? Or what about bitterness? So self-control is important when it comes to our appetites, our emotions, our speech, our words. So he says, I just spout off sometimes. I start just blaspheming the name of God using vile language, cuss words. My friends, may God help you to put a bridle on that tongue. And let not both corrupt and sweet things come out of the same fountain. That's what James tells us in his epistle. Our whole lives need to be tempered. So many people today are addicted to technology. They just can't put their phone down. If they had to part with their smartphone for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, a day, that they would just feel like it was the end of the world because they have little to no self-control. What about their tablet or social media? Could you live without Facebook and Twitter? and Instagram, and TikTok, and the games that are available. out You say, I, I couldn't. That's everything to me. I wake up in the morning. That's the first thing I think about. That's why we need the prophetic voice today to say we need to exercise righteousness, do what's right, and control yourself, and then realize that you and I are accountable to God. Mm-hmm. Judgment is coming. Now, Romans chapter 14, verse 12 says, every knee shall bow to him, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then every one of us shall give an account to God. Every human being is accountable to God. Proverbs 29, verse 26 puts it like this. Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment comes from the Lord. Many people want the king or the president or the governor or the mayor to approve of them, but every man's judgment comes from the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5.8 says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor... Violent perverting of judgment, and justice and judgment has been perverted in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. You see, ultimately, God is going to call men to an account, and that means you and me as well. Ecclesiastes 12:13 says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment, together with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You asked me today, Brother Mike, are we under judgment in America right now? I believe so, based on Romans 1:28. Romans 1:28 talks about God judging a nation when He withdraws and gives it over. Three times in that chapter, He says God gave them over. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. You know what a reprobate? That's a moral term. Mind is an intellectual term. That's moral insanity. A reprobate mind is moral insanity that they do not even know right from wrong anymore. That's what we see in our culture, and that's one of the evidences of divine judgment. We're living in an evil world, my friends. Therefore, we must, like Paul before Felix, speak truth boldly to pop culture, all the while trusting God in his providence to work in his way and his time, and remembering that we represent another kingdom, ultimately speaking, and While we're here, we have no continuing city, but we're seeking one that's to come. It's going to get better, but while we're here, may we be found faithful, speaking not only with the pastoral voice, but when occasion calls for it, boldly, courageously speaking God's truth and bringing it to bear upon the world in which we live.